Hi, this is I Don't Know Much podcast, and today we're talking about predicting risky driving with Dr. Navisha Case. What is risky driving and what does it mean to predict it? Why do we want to predict it? And you're going to get a taste of some of the upcoming research in this field. I don't know much, but I do know about risky driving. Hey, hello, Navisha. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hi, my pleasure. I don't know much is very excited to have you. Um, I'm hoping we can maybe start off with just getting a little introduction of yourself for the audience. Sure. So I'm Navisha and I just recently completed my doctorate in the Department of Psychiatry at McGill University. And my training is actually in clinical research. And so it consisted of running several studies on mental health factors affecting risky driving outcomes. So it's quite an important issue for public health. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with you today. Awesome. Amazing. Congratulations on um, completing your PhD. That's very exciting. Uh, Okay. So as you mentioned today, we're going to be talking about predicting risky driving. So I'm just hoping that maybe you could define risky driving for us and then kind of tell us what it means to be able to predict it. Sure. So risky driving really refers to behaviors that a driver engages in that increase the risk for injury or death to themselves, their passengers, or other road users. So some examples of that could be speeding, running a red light, um, tailgating another vehicle in front of them, or excessively swerving in and out of lanes. Uh, So we don't exactly have a crystal ball to see into the future, of course, but um, in the context of my research, at least, predicting risky driving involves looking at a pattern of risky behaviors and events over time and understanding what psychological and behavioral characteristics of the driver contribute to these patterns and then designing statistical models that can anticipate future behaviors and events using those characteristics. Cool, and so our event in this case is risky driving. Exactly. Cool, and I think the important distinction you made here is not actually impact or crashes happening, it's just the doing these kind of methods. It doesn't have to have like a a negative outcome in terms of it, like something bad happens, it's just those those movements of be, being a risky driver, right? Yeah, so I can expand on that a little bit, actually, because um, the, the significance of risky driving and the importance of looking at it is really grounded in the fact that it can lead to more uh, risky driving um, and, and uh, road traffic crashes. So... Okay. Um, So if I can just uh, like unpack that a little bit, um, the reason for wanting to predict and measure risky driving really lies in the statistics. So road traffic crashes contribute to 1.35 million fatalities each year around the world. And they're also the leading cause of death in ages five to 29. So that means if you're between the ages of five to 29 out of all the unlimited ways to die that you can think of, you're statistically most likely to die from a road traffic crash. So that's something that's largely preventable as well. So um, also while the victims 
the, the victims, uh, when they're injured or killed, it also it's impacting the mental and financial well-being of their families, communities, and workplaces. And health economists estimate that road traffic crashes are actually responsible for between one and eight trillion dollars US in annual costs worldwide by the time we factor in things like healthcare costs and reduced workplace productivity. Um, so there's quite uh, a significance there. And then um, there are three uh, contributing factors or three categories of factors that we typically look at when we're thinking about uh, what's contributing to road traffic crashes. And so those are env environmental factors. So things like the road infrastructure um, and then vehicular factors. So those are things like the presence or use of seat belts and other safety features or regular maintenance of the vehicle, et cetera. And then we have human factors. So that's encompassing things like the driver's cognition, emotional state, behaviors. Um, and so most high income countries have by now managed to minimize the influence of the environmental and vehicular factors uh, through improvements in engineering and regulation. However, the issue of the human factors really remains now, um, and it's still responsible for 94% of road traffic crashes. So that's um, the, the importance of, of looking at risky driving in this context. So ultimately, our, our goal is really to reduce um, traffic injuries and fatalities as much as humanly possible. So um, yes, like the, the future of road transportation as well will likely shift more and more towards autonomous vehicles, but currently in 2022, we're nowhere near having um, public widespread use of those vehicles at a level of automation where human input is no longer needed. And so in the meantime, it's still 1.35 million people who are continuing to die uh, from these crashes. So um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the, the connection between mm -hmm. risky driving and, and the road traffic crashes. Wow, I think that's really interesting too that you point out the ripple effect that it has and actually how many lives are actually impacted from one road crash and these 1.35 million deaths from traffic crashes just lead to a lot more hardships and other public health concerns so i really i really enjoy that you i like that you brought like i understand like i like that you brought that up as that's it's kind of this ripple effect and it's not just um the 1.35 million too uh that are ultimately affected so that's great. And it's so we can see there's a, probably a lot of research then going on in this field because we are not close to those autonomous vehicles. And so what's kind of like the brief, brief background of research that surrounds this? And, and how did you kind of come into this field as a researcher? Right. So um, prior to my doctorate, my background was in neuropsychology and mental health and substance use. So I was really interested in continuing that thread by studying a topic with behavioral outcomes and with uh, large public health relevance. So um, as you can imagine, there are there could be an endless number of things that predict risky driving. So I chose to really narrow that down uh, and 
narrow down the scope of my research by looking at a high risk group. So male drivers tend to be overrepresented in road traffic crashes and uh, so do drivers with a previous conviction of driving while impaired as well. So uh, I selected a sample of male first time driving while impaired or DWI offenders uh, for my research. And what's nice about studying this population is that they also provide us with an opportunity for prevention since unlike the general population, we have record of who these people are. So we can apply various interventions in the relicensing process. So that allows them to receive help as well as keeping our roads safe. So that's a bit of the, the background. And so we were kind of, you mentioned those three uh, main factors contributing to road crashes and how you're focusing on the human side. Is that the correct term? Yeah, the, the human factors, exactly. Human factors. Okay. Yeah. So what are, and I think you mentioned them a bit briefly, but what are some of those potential predictors of risky driving that like a human would be a human factor? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, it's already abundantly clear. We know very well that alcohol has acute effects on our ability to drive, um, but there's also some preliminary evidence from our lab uh, before I did this research, suggesting that uh, there's possibly a more chronic pattern of alcohol misuse that's also affecting driving. So in, uh, and in addition to that, uh, separately, uh, there's also a per se criminal legal threshold for alcohol in Canada of 0.08% blood alcohol concentration. And that's one of the highest thresholds in the world, actually. So wow. um, with growing support for, for lowering that threshold, yeah. I was also interested in the acute effects of lower doses of alcohol. Um, so I looked at, uh, in a separate study, um, which is a discussion for another time, um, <laughs> I looked at um, alcohol at 0.05% blood alcohol concentration. So um, looking at it below the, the legal limit. And then uh, for this study um, that we're talking about now, uh, I looked at it uh, outside of the acute context. So as more of a chronic pattern of behavior. So um, then related to alcohol misuse, another predictor that I also looked at was sensation seeking. So sensation seeking is a personality trait whereby People who score high on it are more likely to seek new experiences that are novel and intense. And there's also a facet of it where people seek thrills and adventure, they're less inhibited, they get bored more easily. And so the literature shows that these characteristics cluster with behaviors like alcohol misuse. And I'm sure you can already start to see the relationship with risky driving as well. And then, uh, so also remember that this study was um, also only including males since they're considered an at-risk group for, mm -hmm. for risky driving. So where this gets even more interesting is that in comparison to females, males are actually more likely to drink when they're in a depressed mood. Uh, so that's mm -hmm. likely increasing the chances of their engaging in risky driving. Um, and so that relationship is particularly strong among males with a high conformity to masculinity norms, 
And so this is likely explained as well by the use of maladaptive coping strategies to deal with feelings of loss that are often associated with depressed mood. So in the end, I looked at uh, depressed mood, alcohol misuse, and sensation seeking as the main predictors of risky driving in this study. Okay, I really in- enjoy and think it's very interesting having this kind of chronic aspect of the alcohol misuse. Like, So it's not even just about being drunk while driving. It's about having kind of this chronic pattern of alcohol intake. That's exactly it. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, and then having those other relationships in terms of like depressed mood to alcohol misuse and then how that might interact with risky driving and then sensation seeking the same thing. That's very interesting. Exactly. <laughs> you can see the connections forming. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I guess let's get a bit more into the study that you're referring to. So that's um, a big part of your PhD work. And so how did that, how did your work go about trying to investigate it through that study? Sure. So the main research question that I was looking to answer was, do subclinical levels of depressed mood and alcohol misuse significantly increase risky driving in male DWI offenders? So to answer that question, I analyzed data from a longitudinal observational cohort study. And so what that means is it's this is a study that um, was conducted over the course of nine years and we observed uh, people's risky driving over that period of time. And so uh, we recruited 129 adult males with a first time conviction of DWI within the past two years. And so we invited them into the lab. They completed self-report questionnaires some of which assess depressed mood, alcohol misuse, and sensation seeking. And then, um, so for this study, I was only interested in looking at the subclinical symptoms of these characteristics. So the individuals uh, who had symptoms that uh, met criteria for clinical diagnosis were actually excluded. So I was only interested in the subclinical levels because those are the ones that um, haven't really been studied before in the literature. And uh, this also um, allowed me to avoid any potential influences from treatments like medications or psychotherapy on the results as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was, makes sense. Yeah. So that was an important uh, um, point as well. So all of that was done at baseline and then uh, or uh, the, the first time that the participants came into the lab. And then we had them come back again three years later to complete a self-report questionnaire, which assessed their risky driving behaviors. And then again, throughout the course of this full nine-year period, we were also pulling data from their provincial driving records in Quebec on the type and number of driving infractions that they were actually receiving during that time. So I then examined depressed mood and alcohol misuse as potential predictors of risky driving three years and nine years after um, their initial visit. And sensation seeking was also included in there as a potential moderator too. 
So they didn't come back. They came back at year three and they didn't come back at year nine. Is that correct? Or they That's right. Back at year one? Okay. That's right. So they only came back to the lab at year three. And then, um, yeah, for, for the uh, full nine years, we were just getting their records from right. uh, the, yeah, from their provincial records, but um, they weren't coming back to the lab. Okay. So then in that initial baseline interview, you have a group of males, DWI offenders, and then they do a self-report on the characteristics you're interested in. And then three years later, they come back and do another self-report on the characteristics that they're on, that you're interested in. And then throughout the nine years, you are looking at kind of their driving record and their driving behavior according to the law. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just wanted to kind of spell that out and make mm-hmm. it um, clear for me. Uh, so that's great. And so from this, what were kind of the outcomes that you saw in this population? Yeah, so um, the one statistically significant finding from this study was that alcohol misuse significantly predicted risky driving three years after that initial visit. And so uh, then when looking at the data over the nine-year period, the overall statistical model was significant, but I wasn't able to quite isolate the effects of any specific variables that I was interested in. Okay. So it was the, out of the, so you studied the characteristics of sensation seeking, depressed mood, um, as well as alcohol misuse. And then uh, at the three-year point, you noticed in the model was telling you basically that um, alcohol misuse was sort of the significant predictor of any kind of traffic. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So okay. those were those were the res- the uh, statistical results, um, mm-hmm. and then theoretically, there's uh, some some different uh, findings that kind of come out of that as well. Okay, I think it's really cool that your study has nine full years of follow up. I think a lot people might not know this, but that's actually studies don't usually go on for that long. It's it's not really, you're not usually getting nine years of data. And so to have that for this, for, for your work, I think is really, is really important and very interesting. Yeah. It's quite a wealth of information for sure. <laughs> yeah. I could just imagine. Um, okay. So you have these outcomes um, and what are kind of the implications of this research and what you found? Like, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. Um, well, these findings are super interesting because they mm-hmm. provide further evidence that alcohol is affecting risky driving, but beyond its acute effects. So right. in other words, male DWI offenders who have a chronic pattern of misusing alcohol are still engaging in risky driving, even when they're not currently intoxicated behind the wheel. Um, So that's really interesting. It it really expands our understanding of the dangers of alcohol and Mm -hmm. uh, likely ties back into that sensation seeking that I mentioned before as well. And then um, one of the limitations of the statistical analyses that I ran as well is that they typically require much larger sample sizes. So with 129 participants in this particular study, it's quite likely that a larger sample size would be needed to see significant statistical significance mm-hmm. um, for these relationships. Um, but there is still the strong theoretical evidence for them. 
Yeah, and I think even having that three-year point, it's uh, like although you don't see the relationship at the nine-year point, you you having that three-year one is like three years is still a very long time, and to know when the person was convicted, like it might that that relationship might be there for at least a few years. I think is very uh, important and and good to know. Absolutely. And just to add another point to that as well. Um, so sensation seeking is a personality trait that tends to actually attenuate with age. So it reduces oh. um, over the lifespan. And so uh, people tend to be higher in sensation seeking when they are uh, like adolescents or, mm-hmm. or young adults. Uh, and then you see as people age, it kind of goes down. Um, so that could be another potential reason why we're seeing less of those effects. Um, right. Progressively. At the nine-year point. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I guess just a follow-up to that, what was kind of the mean age of the participants that your study used? Yeah. So most of the participants were in their 20s or 30s at the time okay. of their, their first visit. So okay. it's, it's right around um, the time when, when sensation seeking has already kind of peaked mm-hmm. and it's maybe starting to, to decrease in, in their 30s and so on. Wow. So what does this mean for how, like, how can we kind of use this data moving forward in programs or like public health interventions? Is there any kind of goal we're trying to meet in terms of reducing traffic accidents that this kind of information is really valuable for? Absolutely. So um, there are some goals out right now um, from the United Nations and um, also some Canadian goals as well. And so uh, the aim is to reduce the um, the fatalities as a result of road traffic crashes by 50% by the year 2030. And so um, this research is really helping to uh, progress towards that by uh, offering ways that um, ways of predicting risky driving um, mm-hmm. in, in a more chronic pattern of alcohol use, misuse. Um, so this is something that could be implemented into driver relicensing uh, programs, for example. Uh, so when drivers are um, have received a conviction of a DWI and they're going through that process of relicensing, um, there's often a, a psychological assessment or evaluation that is part of that relicensing. And so um, developing treatments that could be used for this population specifically um, could be really helpful. And so there's uh, some work that's being done in that area as well that this could be applied wow. to. That's so great, especially you can kind of see like what the direct effects of direct effects of the relationship that you found and um, like who knows what more research is going on in terms of this field and um, what like a bigger sample size might tell us too might be some really cool stuff. That's exactly it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, so a lot of the the relationship, the main relationship you found was alcohol misuse related to risky driving. And I guess I'm um, curious as to if we can kind of translate this finding to similar areas of impairment, um, like say cannabis and driving or chronic cannabis cannabis use, acute cannabis use. You know, like things like that. Yeah, that's a good question. So for cannabis, cannabis is an entirely different drug 
So it has different mechanisms of action uh, from alcohol, and then it also has a different profile of users as well. So um, it's it's uh, like I, I wouldn't recommend generalizing the results from this research to cannabis. It's an entirely different beast. Um, but to expand a little bit on uh, acute cannabis, though, if I may, um, one of the things that we would also need to consider is the feasibility of implementing the results as well of any research that we do. And so while we already have various tests and interventions for people who are prone to um, prone to using alcohol in the context of driving, we don't currently have anything like that for cannabis. So if we think about roadside testing, for example, uh, for the acute presence of, of a drug. Um, so with alcohol, when a driver is pulled over by a police officer, it's fairly quick and fairly accurate uh, for the officer to, uh, to give a roadside test of the driver's blood alcohol concentration using a breathalyzer that the driver would just blow into. Uh, and the result comes back uh, pretty much immediately. Uh, but testing for the presence of, of cannabis, however, requires a full toxicology analysis of, of blood to receive a similar level of accuracy. And that's something that's just not feasible at the roadside. Um, so while there is research that's beginning to emerge in cannabis, uh, especially since its legalization, implementing it would still be quite a challenge. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to think about my driving situations. And, I, you know, you see big, big signs in Toronto that say, um, don't drink and drive. I think you've even seen don't boat and drive, don't drink and boat and things like that. But I, I know I've seen advertisements on TV, but I don't know how much actual uh, – signs when I'm driving I've seen related to kind of preventing cannabis use and I know like that's a very that's a prevention measure but it's not a very big one I mean it's reaching a lot of people but uh yeah I thought that that's really interesting that you mentioned that yeah that's a that's a really good point actually I I would suspect that's because the research is, is still emerging and right um yeah so we'd likely need to be a bit more evidence-based before having um, those sorts of um, prominent um, mm -hmm. messaging. But yeah, like you can't, I mean, police officers are not equipped to just take your blood at the side of the road <laughs> and exactly. then bring it back to the lab. Yeah, that's not. It's pretty invasive too. Yeah, super invasive. Yeah, yeah. and I don't think that's really interesting. So I wonder if there are kind of those acute those rapid tests for uh, cannabis levels coming out that might be useful in those situations. Yeah, I know there is some uh, there is some work being done to try and develop um, those types of tests, but we're mm -hmm. nowhere near being there yet. Right. Wow. Um, and so then another thing your 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 study focuses on males and males with a DWI offense. And so, what do kind of these results mean for maybe females or people without an offense? Does it even, tr like, I guess it, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a good point. Um, and an important one as well. So, um, the, the particular results for this study are limited to males with a first time DWI offense. 
Um, so that is quite a limited population when you look at the grander scheme of things. Um, another point um, to, to raise in parallel with that as well is um, urban versus rural sampling as well. So the largest metropolitan areas in Canada are Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. Um, so they account for 35% of Canada's population. However, interestingly, only 8% of DWIs actually occur in these areas. So there's quite a bit of need for um, this type of research to be done um, with more rural sampling as well. Uh, and so um, coming back to, to what you were asking before, so um, there's a lack of racial demographics data on road traffic crashes in Canada. However, when we look at the US, we know that uh, Indigenous people are three times as likely to die from road traffic crashes in the US. And this is really concerning um, for us in Canada as well, because there's a similar proportion of um, Canada's Indigenous people that also live rurally. Um, in Canada. So about 58.8% uh, of Indigenous people in Canada live rurally versus 54% uh, in the US. So you can see where um, there could be some, some interaction there between the, uh, like the, the need for rural sampling and um, also uh, have implications for uh, Indigenous peoples as well. And so the that disproportionate impact as well calls for a lot of continued research in that area to identify factors that are contributing to road traffic crashes in a more rural context as well. Right. And I guess uh, your study, what was kind of the racial makeup of the participants that you use? Like, was it um, like, was there some populations that weren't as well represented? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the the study population was predominantly white. So add that to male, and yeah, it's, yeah, it's not it's not a very diverse group. And so there's definitely a, a huge need for um, looking at more diverse populations. Again, yeah. the rationale for looking at males is because they are a high risk group, mm -hmm. but um, definitely need uh, more diversity. Otherwise. Yeah, I'm sure the field is expanding probably pretty rapidly as well. So yeah. uh, maybe like we'll see stuff like that coming out relatively soon on yeah. being able to cover more of those groups, especially as we become more aware that um, like sample sizes need to be more diverse or samples mm -hmm. need to be more diverse, you know? Yeah. Okay, well, that was really interesting. I think uh, having the privilege of reading the study, it was really, really – uh, interesting. And I learned a lot about kind of these relationships and why this type of research is important. And I think we covered a lot of that today. So I'm really, really glad. Thanks. Yeah, I'm glad it was I was happy to share with you as well. Yeah. So um, now that you have completed your PhD, um, is there a next step for Navisha? Or uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I am honestly taking some time to decompress this summer. Nice. Um, I only just finished, um, only just uh, defended and completed my, my thesis and everything um, very recently. So it's definitely time to decompress and then start to think about next steps afterwards. 
That's so great to hear. And congratulations again um, on that. Thank you so much. And once your study is available, I will definitely link that in the episode show notes so that anyone that is more interested in learning about the study can go and check that out. Absolutely. It's just getting ready to, to be sent off for publication. So amazing. That's so exciting. Uh, and is there anything else that you would like, um, any way that people can find you if they're interested in learning more or anything like that? Sure. Um, so I am quite easily accessible on LinkedIn. Um, my name is very easy to spell, so I'm, I'm quite easy to, I mean, difficult to spell, but unique. (laughs) So, so I'm very easy to find is what I mean. So, um, yeah, LinkedIn is the best place. Okay, and I'll link that also in the episode show notes so that if people are interested, they can check it out. Um, okay, well, that's everything I have for you today. I want to thank you again so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your insights and the research that you worked very hard on. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you so much, Miranda.